are listening to Appalachian Words, the show about the language and culture of Appalachia. I'm your host, Jennifer Heinmiller. I am co-author of the Dictionary of Smoky Mountain and Southern Appalachian English, a historical dictionary that is over 1.3 million words long. It covers all sorts of words from Appalachia, from Aunt Lydia Basket to Wrinkledy. If you're curious about those terms, stay tuned for news about the book. It is set to be published in spring of 2021 by the University of North Carolina Press. So just a little while longer to wait. Appalachian English is a rich language with a history stretching back hundreds of years. But outside of this region, there are more stereotypes than honest conversation about the culture. So in an effort to bring the language and its history to a wider audience, I decided to start this show. For each episode, if you're a longtime listener, you know, I'll be reading and discussing entries in the dictionary and highlighting different points about Appalachian culture and history, as well as talking a little bit how, about how the dictionary set up and the process that went into compiling it. I welcome your questions, comments, stories, or any other message you'd like to send me, as always. And thank you so much to those of you who have sent me messages. It's so much fun to receive your emails. Uh, and talk about this tiny niche area that holds such a special place in so many hearts. Welcome back once again to the mountains and foothills of Appalachia. You are listening to episode 13. That being said, I feel like I messed up. (laughs) I probably should have done the superstitions episode for number 13, don't you think? Uh, Oh well, Um, okay, to make up for it. Uh, I want to try to put together a really fun Halloween episode. And my gosh, that's coming up really quick, isn't it? I mean, it's going to be here before we know it. In my head, it's still like March or April. Although, I mean, this year it's a little bit different. It feels like everything just kind of stopped in mid-spring for me. Um, But anyway, I, I just feel like we're all missing, you know, that community spirit and some community fun. So I was thinking for the Halloween episode... Um, I would love to hear your stories or memories, um, anything spooky or having to do with Halloween that you'd like to share with me. Um, I'd love to collect these and put them together in a special, more community-based episode. So definitely send those my way, um, and we'll see what kind of uh, material we can put together. Uh, I can't wait to hear stories, and of course I'll do a little bit of research on my own. Um, I love looking at those stories and legends, although they do creep me out sometimes. I'm I'm prone to nightmares from time to time, so <laughs> I'll have to read those emails and uh, do that research in the middle of the day, I think. Um, one more uh, quick announcement. Um, recently, uh, we, we, I, this podcast, Appalachian Words, <laughs> has been featured on folkapothic.com. If you are familiar Folk Apothics and the Folk Apothic Foundation. It's a great organization based out of North Georgia. Really, really awesome people. Check it out if you have not looked at their site. Um, They do small batch products that are grown, harvested, and created in the hills and hollers of Southern Appalachia, which is basically what we're all about right here on this podcast. I keep saying we as if there's more than one person, but (laughs) it's what this podcast uh, really values. Um, so Appalachian Words, um, has very kindly been featured as one of their partners in Cool Folk, and they have a wonderful playlist of Appalachian music and other things, including podcasts, 
uh, where Appalachian Words is also featured. So if you go to their website, which is folkapothic.com, um, you can see the link to this show and you can go through their playlist. Um, you can discover, you know, links to these episodes um, and some really cool Appalachian music. Um, really cool bands are featured on there. So I definitely recommend that and I recommend checking out their shop and reading about what they do. So here we are, the end of August, and here in Asheville, North Carolina, the leaves are already turning. I'm seeing shades of yellow when I go running now, and it seems to have snuck up on me. Um, it's still pretty hot outside, but it's you can feel that, that chill snap in the air, even on the hot days. Um, I'm a South Carolinian, and my little potted lemon tree is still enjoying my patio, but I know I'm going to have to bring him in probably within the next month, uh, at least during the night, because it's going to be getting chilly. I love summer. I'm such a summer person, so it's a little sad, but but this time of year means time for harvest, which also means time for lots of great food, which is always a fun topic. Uh, so for this episode, I thought I would talk about three early autumn foods that were and still are in many places important in the mountains. Um, There are a lot of traditions and uh, terminology around these three words. So today I'm going to explore beans, grapes, and molasses. Not all together. I'm not sure that would make a very tasty dish, but starting off, beans. It is bean time. Uh, Many of my friends and family have been telling me about how they are picking their beans, just buckets and buckets, because it is time to put them up. If you're not familiar, putting up means to can your beans, uh, preserve them in some way so you can have a pantry full of your summer produce goodies that you can enjoy all winter long. So um, one of the terms that we hear quite often in Appalachian cooking uh, when we're talking about beans is soup beans. Um, And... Just hearing that phrase, even saying it right now, just takes me back to childhood and I can smell it. (laughs) There's a very particular smell associated with soup beans, if you're familiar. Now, soup beans um, refers to a dried bean, especially pinto beans, almost always pinto beans in my experience. Um, And my my experience is going to be based on East Tennessee Western North Carolina and the Ohio West Virginia border. So all my extended family from those areas, soup beans equals pinto beans. Um, And, you know, typically or historically, it does refer to dried beans because they were economical, easy to store, cheap, took a little bit of time to prepare, of course. Um, (laughs) You get that smell that lingering smell all through your house. Um, Although these days, and uh, for many members of my family personally, um, canned beans are just more practical uh, with modern life. So uh, we have some good explanations about soup beans and how they were uh, prepared. So 1930, to start us off, we have our first example here uh, from a book called Death Knell. The mountaineer has invented many words to suit his meanings. Beans dried in the pot are variously called shuck beans, fodder beans, and leather breeches to distinguish them from shelled beans, which he, the mountaineer, calls soup beans. So this is a pretty important thing to distinguish. Um, When 
the people in the mountains would dry their beans. So canning is definitely a main method of preservation, especially these days. But historically, um, to make them last especially long and to avoid some of the hassles that go along with canning, you know, you need jars. It's a pretty uh, labor-intensive process. You have to be very careful about bacteria, about the process, all of that. It's also a pretty hot process if you've ever canned anything. I mean, it, it involves long hours of standing over boiling vats of water and, you know, all sorts of other concoctions. Um, so the other method that was often used was drying your beans. Um, but this uh, took on a different uh, process depending on the type of bean. So some beans, you would dry them right in their pods. Um, and then you would eat them like that later on. Um, so, you know, things typically like what we think of as green beans um, and any of those varieties, they would just dry them right in the pod. Uh, but then you had other beans, um, such as pinto beans, which were shelled first and then dried that way. Um, and this example gives us some really great terms. So shuck beans, fodder beans, and leather britches, especially leather britches. Uh, if you're familiar with the first edition of this dictionary, leather britches pops up a lot. Um, and that's a, a type of bean, again, where it's dried in the shell. Um, and it's called that because you store it like that for months, and then when you cook it, you basically reconstitute it. Um, but when you do that, of course, it's not going to be nearly as tender um, as a fresh bean. And unfortunately, the shell does get a little leathery. Um, but, I mean, it sounds a little bit different from what most people are used to today when they think of green beans or, you know, any variety of bean cooked like that. But a lot of people in the mountains really enjoy that texture um, and that flavor. So we also have uh, 1952, uh, a book called 40 Acres and No Mule. And this is a really wonderful book if you have not checked it out. Um, lots of examples of traditions in the mountains. So um, Giles writes, whatever else there is to eat, the soup bean is always present. In the city, we call them pinto beans or brown beans, but any merchant in the small towns hereabouts knows what you mean when you say soup beans. And then he goes on to describe how they're served, what they look like. He says, they're served floating in a big bowl of their own soup. The idea is to crumble a chunk of cornbread and pour the beans and the soup over it. And my friends, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this <laughs> within my own family. Um, or um, another method that I have seen very often in my own house when I was a child is uh, instead of cornbread, and maybe this is a more uh, mid or northern Appalachian tradition, I would see a bowl of soup beans where, you know, they're cooked all thick. And then you add about, I don't know, half a sleeve of Ritz crackers all crumbled up. <laughs> just mush them up till they're just about dust. And then mix them in with your spoon and let it sit for a little while. So you basically have a bean mush concoction there. Um, and I have seen certain people put ketchup all over that. But um, not sure if that's an Appalachian thing or a Midwest thing. But that is just about the epitome of Appalachian comfort food when those evenings start getting cold. So many winters, I, oh my gosh, I remember uh, 
coming home from school and I could just smell it. And I, I love beans. Don't get me wrong. I love beans. I am a huge vegetable eater, but I just can't do that smell. Oh, I feel like a fraud. <laughs> it's just not one of my favorites. And I remember coming home and I would just have this sense of dread if I opened the front door and I'm just smacked in the face with that smell of soup beans. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if you're listening to this, if you're a huge soup bean fan and you have a particular way of eating it, um, let me know. Maybe I'll give it another shot. I don't think I've actually tried it in, uh, I don't know how many years. It's It's been a while, but maybe I should give it another go, especially with cornbread. I like cornbread. Uh, Ritz crackers, not so much, but maybe, maybe with the right kind of cornbread. Um, so anyway... Um, speaking of when you're putting your beans up or getting them ready to store in some fashion for the coming cold weather, there are a number of methods and a number of events. So community events, and it's, you know, again, bittersweet, like thinking about these communal events, um, where this year they're probably not happening so much. Uh, of course, these traditions are, you know, getting fewer and farther between anyway, but this year it's especially tough. Although I suppose, you know, if you have a nice day, like uh, today it's shaping up to be a beautiful afternoon after the remnants of this hurricane or tropical storm have just blown through. Um, I can imagine sitting in the backyard with uh, a bunch of friends and family and uh, doing some of these activities. So first up, we have bean breaking. So a bean breaking, we have some examples here. Um, a 1982 book says once we were having a great time in bean breaking. Everyone was working hard and getting a large pile of those green beans ready for pickling. Some of the girls would be stringing, others would be breaking the green beans into pieces about three quarters of an inch in length. Uh, and then in the year 2000, we have a book, uh, women generally perform tasks alone or as independent activities done communally, such as quilting or bean breaking. So very similar to a quilting bee or that kind of communal activity, especially with the women. Sure. You know, that was just the tradition. Um, you would have a group of people sitting together, usually with big buckets, uh, next to them, uh, breaking those beans up. If you have ever grown your own beans or bought a big mess of them from the farmer's market or whatever, I'm sure you are familiar with this process. Uh, and depending on the type of bean, you may have even uh, pulled the strings out. Uh, some of those pole beans especially, um, they can have these tough fibers if you're not familiar, especially when the bean pods get longer. I used to grow one particular variety that would get, I don't know, six or seven inches long uh, and when you go to break it, there would be a, a long string uh, on the, the top side of the pot, the top side. I guess either side could be the top side, but one side had this fiber where you have to pull it off um, so that it didn't get tough when you went to cook it. Um, and then, yep, you break them up. Uh, that's about the length that I would break them. That's, that's how I was taught. That's how my family does it. Um, and this this entry, that first citation mentions... Uh, how they would get them ready for pickling. So I mentioned canning um, and drying the beans, and I neglected to mention pickling. So there is definitely a long tradition of pickling various vegetables uh, in Appalachia. Well, vegetables and other things as well. Um, 
if you are familiar with pickled watermelon rind. I mean, that one, it seems like that's kind of making a comeback um, in different foodie circles. I know here in Asheville, if you're familiar, we have so many great little places where they do uh, kind of locally inspired farm to table cuisine. Uh, You know, they use local ingredients and they try to create their own twist on some of the more traditional foods. So I've seen watermelon rind pickle served as a garnish uh, on various dishes. Um, But in this case, uh, pickled beans, definitely one of the staples. Um, And I I actually like those. I'm a fan of pickles. Nice uh, tangy flavor. Um, Yeah, really goes well. You know, if you do a nice quick pickle and then you have them for those Indian summer days, as they say, in late fall where it gets warm and sunny for a few days. Uh, Really nice, uh, refreshing crunch to have along with your lunch or potato salad or something. So back to the different events. So um, with bean breaking. So bean hulling is another one. And this is also called a bean shelling or a bean shelling bee, B-E-E, sort of like quilting bee or spelling bee, just used to... mean an event. Um, And sometimes they would work uh, some sort of competition, you know, friendly competition, just to make it more fun and interesting for everybody. So we define the bean hulling as formerly a family or community work activity to shell such bean as Octobers, allowed to dry on the vine before picking. So this is another very specific example. Um, This particular variety of bean was called October beans, Um, And this is one of the ones where you would just let it dry right in the pod. And for this one, you would just let it dry right on the vine. So you wait until pretty much everything's dead a little bit later in the fall, maybe a couple months uh, from now, sometime around October. Go figure, there's uh, where your name comes from. Um, So you would wait until that point before you pick them and do anything to put them up for winter. So we have a few different examples here. Um, Looking back to uh, 1960, uh, we have bean hauling means a community working or, quote, bee that was once quite common. In the 1971, uh, we have an interviewee from uh, one of the Appalachian Oral History Projects. It's a wonderful collection. Uh, And this speaker says, in the fall of the year, they would have bean stringings and bean hullings, and then after they got the work done, why they would make candy, and sometimes they'd dance and have a good time after they got their work done. So work hard, play hard, if that's not the American way and the Appalachian way. I don't know what is. Um, But uh, in that particular example, they talk about making candy, um, and we'll get... I'll touch on that uh, a little bit later in this episode. So um, sometimes at these events, it wouldn't be just beans. You would be doing other things uh, later or at the same time, such as making molasses. Uh, And then, of course, worked in there to make it fun, make it a celebration and uh, take a little bit of the focus off of the hard work. You know, you have your dancing, you have some of that great Appalachian music, um, just it just screams autumn to me. I remember going to different uh, autumn festivals and square dances when I was younger uh, in the mountains and in the hills up in southern Ohio, sometimes in East Tennessee. And um, of course, it was different from what these speakers refer to, because that was definitely before my time. But 
It's so easy to imagine, isn't it? I mean, just hearing those words, you can almost feel like you're there. Such a cozy feeling. Um, and then later on in the 70s, from 1979, we have another oral history project, so more interviews that were conducted. Uh, this was in the Big South Fork area, which is uh, East Tennessee and Southeastern Kentucky. Um, if you've ever been to the Big South Fork area, there's just beautiful scenery, uh, really wonderful hiking, um, and some really great uh, local lore and history. Uh, but this interviewee says, my grandmother used to tell about them having log rollings and corn shuckings and bean shellings and all like that, but we didn't have them. So it seems like even by that point, it was kind of uh, getting fewer and farther between, even by the late 70s. Um, and this, this is actually also a great clue to some of the industry uh, in the area when they talk about log rollings and corn shuckings. I mentioned in a previous episode how... Uh, the Great Smoky Mountains area, in particular, had a lot of logging activity, and that's one thing that made it a bit different from other parts of Appalachia, where coal mining was the major industry, or people would do more independent farming. Um, so, yeah, logging really permeated a lot of aspects of life in the East Tennessee, Western North Carolina area. All right, so moving on, uh, mentioned above, the bean stringing. So let's look at bean stringing a little bit more in depth. So this, um, a very similar definition. Uh, we define it as formerly a neighborhood or family work activity to remove the strings, aha, if you remember, from beans in preparing them for pickling, canning, or most often drying by threading or stringing and hanging them as on the porch, in the rafters, near a fireplace, or on a scaffold. Once dried, they are called leather britches or shuck beans, often dancing and entertainment followed completion of work. So a little bit more detail there on what we talked about uh, before. And this is interesting because you have stringing taking on two different meanings here, right? So we have removing those strings. Oh my gosh, if you've ever forgotten to remove a string or just gotten lazy about it, I mean, we've all been there and you cook your beans and they look so good and then you bite into one, you get those strings in your teeth and you can't eat them. It's kind of like when you get the corn silk stuck in your teeth, but um, hey, it's a taste of home gardening, right? Um, anyway, so you have that meaning, but you also have this other meaning um, to actually weave a string through the bean pods, through the shells, and then you string them up in various places so that they can hang out there and dry and cure that way. Um, so we have a number of explanations here about this in the example paragraph. So as far back as 1908, we have, there was a quote, bean stringing at the house that day. Um, and then some examples of these community activities from a book in 1939. Clearings, log rollings, house raisins, corn shuckings, bean strings, apple peelings, lasses, stir-offs, and quiltings. Those said to be not as common as they once were, still survive. And it's incredible to think how long ago that was now. 1939. Uh, moving forward a bit. Uh, 1956, Joseph Hall, uh, one of his interviews, the speaker said, After the close of those corn shellings, bean stringings, they would have play. Sometimes they would have a dance and drink corn whiskey. <laughs> so another proud Appalachian tradition. 
Um, then we also have uh, 1978. The beans were poured in the floor in the middle of the room. After all the work was done up and us girls had spruced up, then the neighbors began to arrive, bringing their darning needles with them. At first, everyone would snout the beans, which means pull the strings off. When a good supply was ready, some would begin to put them on the twine. Of course, the boys and girls would pair off in couples and work together. Uh, and some boy or man would bring a banjo or fiddle and play music. So it's just kind of an all-in-one activity, isn't it? Kind of, uh, you know, get the work done, have some fun, uh, even built-in dates in there, wonderful music. Um, it sounds like a nice time. Although this writer, it makes me wonder, us girls had spruced up. Um, so I'm wondering if the the men were still smelly from harvesting. Why is it only the girls who have to get spruced up? Hmm. Anyway, uh, moving forward, 1986, um, Tyson writes about his memories in a book called Reflections. When we kids were growing up, there wasn't much that we could do to pass the time. The only entertainment we had was when some of the neighbors would have a bean stringing. They would pick their green beans and when they were ready to can and to put up for pickle beans. Sometimes they would have eight to ten bushels piled on the floor and they would invite all they could get to come in at night and help string the beans. When we would get done, we would clean up the floor and have banjo and fiddle music. Uh, and then uh, the 2006 Encyclopedia of Appalachia. I know I've recommended this book more than once, but if you haven't seen it and you are interested in Appalachian culture, it is a wonderful resource. Um, so from that book, we have... A bean stringing was a popular social event in the first part of the 20th century, providing a way for neighbors to socialize while doing important work. Word would go out to neighbors that a bean stringing was to take place, and the neighbors and acquaintances would assemble, with someone usually bringing a guitar, fiddle, or banjo to provide music. I don't know about you, but like listening to all of this talk about music and banjo, I just I want to go sit and listen to some music now. Uh, it really sounds wonderful. And it's interesting here that uh, the encyclopedia says it was the first part of the 20th century. So it shows that um, these traditions were really dying out. Um, even, you know, 50, 70 years ago, um, it seems like it wouldn't have been that long in the past. And, you know, in many cases it wasn't, but um, in many cases it, it truly was. And you think about that sort of thing today, and it's a little bit hard to imagine. I, I feel like it would be kind of tragic. I can just imagine if, you know, a community tried to do it. And I, the first thought that comes to my mind is you have a bunch of people sitting around, um, you know, trying to work or whatever, supposed to be working and staring at their phones and things like that, or, you know, posting to Instagram or something, which, you know, I'm, I participate in Instagram, but... Um, there's such a, a feeling of nostalgia there, you know, even for things that we didn't have. It, uh, they definitely had some problematic aspects of life in those days, but events like that uh, makes me want to jump in, you know? All right, so back to our beans. So talking a little bit more about different types of beans. And if you're a gardener, you're probably familiar with some of these. Um, so a bunch bean is any green bean tending to grow in bunches. And this contrasts with pole beans, runner beans, and stick beans. So 
Um, these are typically um, the beans where you would pick them and you would pickle them or can them. So a few different uh, examples here from Joseph Hall. Um, he asked one of his interviewees, oh, what are the different kinds of beans? And this person said, we had bunch beans, cornfield beans, stick beans, shuck beans, leather britches. And then from 1957, uh, there's a really great description. Uh, bunch beans are green beans from the type of bean plant that grows to about two feet high and stands alone as opposed to stick beans. So stick beans are going to be like pole beans where you need some sort of support and they'll, um, you know, they'll shoot out these tendrils that create a vine uh, and they grow up on those supports. But these ones, bunch beans are, they grow in, in little bushes. So that's why they're called bush beans. Um, and I don't know if I want to say typically, but what's associated with the different types? So pole beans typically produce for a longer time and bush beans will just kind of do like a, a one and done. Like all the beans will appear at once and you'll have one main harvest. You might have a few subsequent harvests that are a little, they're a little more paltry as the season goes on. Um, paltry, like, you know, fewer, I'm not talking about chickens. <laughs> um, but with the pole beans, those are more likely to be candidates uh, for leather britches, uh, drying them on the vine or stringing them up to dry. Um, and then some more uh, varieties we have, uh, butter beans. I'm sure you've heard of this. Butter bean, now sometimes this is used interchangeably with lima beans, but in our research, they make a differentiation between lima beans and butter beans. So we define it as a small lima bean. And this is intentionally vague. Uh, it could be uh, construed as a type of lima bean, or it could be that it just looks like a small lima bean. We're not going to get too far into that or split hairs because it really varied by region and community. But a few um, typical interpretations are given in our examples. So uh, 1949, uh, a great resource, Word Geography of the Eastern US. Butter beans is a common expression for lima beans in all of the Southern area. Many people in this section differentiate between the large lima beans and the smaller butter beans. In 1962, Wilson, so he wrote typically about uh, Eastern and Central Kentucky. So he says the term butter bean, a small flat bean grown all over the South and called by many names can be taken as a sort of test word for the region. To call it a lima bean would still subject you to questioning as to where you quote live at for lima beans are fetch on either dried as in former times or frozen as now. And we have another variety of bean. Well, sort of a bean. We have clay peas which is a type of black-eyed peas. And I was not familiar with this before I started doing research for this dictionary. Uh, but there are actually a lot of examples. Uh, 1971, we have someone writing, everybody planted these old clay peas. I ain't seen them over in over 20 years. The seeds of them is about to run out. People used to always plant them in their cornfield. And that kind of gives me a clue. Maybe that's why I am not familiar. The 70s was before my time. So, you know, maybe the seeds have just all but 
petered out at this point. Um, if you're familiar with clay peas, I would love to hear uh, your stories. Or if you're currently growing them, please let me know. I'm, I'm very curious. Uh, you know, black-eyed peas are so associated with the South, especially parts of the Deep South, more towards where I'm from. Um, so I, I'm curious. Then uh, from the Great Smoky Mountain National Park interviews in 1976, we have someone reporting... You could get all them old clay peas picked on the halves and he sewed them clay peas. That's what kept the ground up. Clay peas, now they cook them. I'd rather have a mess of clay peas as white beans. And white beans is kind of ambiguous here. It could mean uh, any number of different, well, white beans. Um, and I don't see that a whole lot in the research, so I'm not exactly sure what that speaker was referring to. Um... Then 1999, we have uh, the book Clinch River. Dad started growing clay peas in the corn. Vines would climb up the stalk and they would have to be plucked and shelled, or picked and shelled, excuse me. Um, and this, this is such a great indication of the interaction between the European uh, descendant settlers who uh, mingled with the Cherokee who were native to the area in Southern Appalachia because that was one of their growing techniques. You're probably familiar um, with uh, Succotash and the Three Sisters and this very specific uh, growing method where they would plant their corn and they would plant the beans right alongside the corn. And um, it would be a type of pole bean, but instead of um, erecting supports, the beans would just grow right up the corn stalks and it was just such a, a type of plant harmony, almost like they were meant to grow together that way. Um, and the Cherokee and other tribes as well have actually a lot of lore about this, about how they actually are meant to grow that way. And there's uh, different legends explaining why. Um, and there's even some scientific research, depending on the types of these plants, of course, where it's such a mutually beneficial relationship for the plants where one puts uh, different nutrients into the soil and the other uses it and vice versa. So um, it's really a fascinating method of growing. So um, the, next, uh, the next term I actually have leading right into that cornfield bean, which is a running bean uh, planted next to a corn plant so that it will climb the stalk as it grows. Um, and if you are especially interested in beans and bean terminology in Appalachia, um, 2011, there is a book on bean terminology by an author named Bill Best. I highly recommend it. Anything and everything you ever wanted to know about beans in the Eastern U.S., I suspect you will find in this book. Uh, but he talks about it here, gives a great definition any climbing bean, corn patches traditionally served as the poles which beans used for climbing. There you go. Um, and then looking back a little bit further, um, 1960, uh, Wilson in his research, he wrote that it was a variety of common bean planted with corn, especially in the later Rosanier patches. And that's... Um, one of the regional ways to say roasting ear. So this would be corn grown uh, in larger ears typically and used for roasting as opposed to drying it or using it for cattle feed or something like that. Um, Dare, uh, the Dictionary of American Regional English, another great resource. Gosh, I'm just, I feel like I'm hitting all the superstars today. 
Uh, if you're not familiar, that is, what is it, a six-volume set of dictionaries. Um, wonderful, wonderful, amazing <laughs> uh, set of dictionaries and just the, the, the pinnacle of regional American English research. If you're not familiar, please, please check it out. Um, there's also a digital dare uh, hosted online by I think Harvard University Press um, and the dare staff, uh, dear friends of mine um, and Michael Montgomery, my co-author for the project, um, who he's he passed away, but um, he had a long history of working with the dare staff, and it's just a great resource. Cannot say enough great things about it, but. Anyway, so they, of course, talk about cornfield beans, and they're very specific about what type of bean it is. Um, their research shows, at least in the Brasstown, North Carolina community, this referred to a type of bean that is eaten in the pod before being dried. So, um, and then we also have a little bit later, 1982, uh, there was always a pot of cornfield beans with bacon cooking on the stove when the children came in. Um, and that that's a very typical way of cooking the beans. You're probably familiar, if you've ever had beans in the, the uh, eastern U.S., very often cooked with bacon or some other pork product for flavor. Um, and to round things out for this one... Um, this entry, to the Encyclopedia of Appalachia. <laughs> it's always great to give them the final word. So this touches on what I was talking about with the uh, Native American growing methods. So uh, they say heirloom beans are described in terms of three general characteristics. Cut shorts are beans packed so tightly in the hulls that the ends are squared off. That is, they cannot grow to full length inside the hull and are cut short. Greasies or greasy beans do not have the fuzzy skins common to other beans, but are shiny or greasy in appearance. And yeah, those are those are pretty interesting beans. I've grown those a few times. I actually grew a variety that had purple shells, just absolutely beautiful. And I prefer them because I have sensitive skin, and when I pick your typical beans uh, without gloves, I get a rash. Anyway, back to the Encyclopedia of Appalachia. One of the three sisters recognized by Native Americans, cornfield beans are climbing beans traditionally grown in corn along with pumpkins or squash, a technique that raises efficiency by fostering a symbiotic relationship among the plants. Beans can be any combination of these three types. For example, a particular bean might be described as a speckled, long, greasy, cut short cornfield bean. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, and then, of course, you could make uh, a few different dishes. Most popularly would just be the bean soup. Um, but they also had bean bread, um, which was also called a bean dumpling or Cherokee bean bread. And this referred to a coarse bread made from usually dried beans, especially pintos, everyone's favorite, crushed and then mixed with cornmeal, originally made by the Cherokee, hence Cherokee bean bread. Um, also sometimes called Indian bean bread in those days. Uh, and some great um, examples here from Hall's research in the 30s. Lots of people made chestnut bread and bean bread. They mixed dried beans and cornmeal. Um, chestnut bread was made in a similar way. Uh, I, I think it sounds delicious. I am a big fan of chestnuts. Um, 1951, they give you a great overview of the process in Cherokee cook lore. To prepare meal to make bean bread, one uses flour corn. 
This corn is skinned with wood ashes. To make bean bread, boil dry beans in plain water until tender. Pour boiling beans and some of the soup into the cornmeal and stir until mixed. Have a pot of plain water on the fire boiling. If you want bean dumplings, just make mixture out in balls and cook in the pot of plain water uncovered until done. Eat these dumplings plain with butter, meat grease, in parentheses, the Indian's favorite, wild game, hot or cold as suits one's fancy. Uh, 1997, some of uh, Michael Montgomery's research says that bean bread is made specifically from October beans, which are cooked first and then put in hot dough, wrapped and cooked in hot water for approximately 20 minutes. So slightly different process there, different uh, end product. 2003, a book uh, about Cherokee culture. The unique Cherokee bean bread is formed from unbolted cornmeal and cooked pinto beans, then wrapped in corn husks and boiled like a dumpling, resulting in a solid cake. This is so fascinating when I think about different world cultures who cook uh, these different, um, I don't even know what I would call them, different cake type foods inside either uh, corn husks or you have uh, banana leaves when you're looking at cultures in the Pacific where they might make a sticky rice dish or something similar uh, and then wrap it in banana leaves or some other type of leaves and then cook it that way. It's really just fascinating to me that so many different groups independently developed this kind of cooking methodology. Uh, and then one more to round it out, uh, 2006 book. Um, she makes bean dumplings the way her mother and grandmother did. She cooks up a mess of soup beans, kneads the beans into a paste with cornmeal and drops the dumplings into a pot of boiling water. So, uh, yeah, it really seems it's completely up to, up to you, how you like it, whether you like the beans mashed and mixed into a, a smoother dough with cornmeal, or if you like to keep them whole and wrap a dough around it. Um, I've never had bean bread or bean dumplings, but I'm, I'm really curious. I, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever seen them for sale anywhere or even really referred to outside of my dictionary research. If you make these or um, know someone who does or you're familiar, uh, drop me a line. I would love to hear about it. Um, and then you can also make uh, a, a thinner version called bean gravy. Um, and we have an example from a wonderful blog called Blind Pig and Acorn. Uh, Mom made something we call bean gravy, which was leftover pinto beans mashed and mixed with cornmeal. All right, so that's a, a lot of beans. Got about 40 minutes worth of beans there. So let's move on to something a little bit sweeter. Uh, fox grapes. Uh, now, fox grapes are an interesting one. I actually have some early memories of fox grapes. My, my own grandmother uh, pointing out fox grapes to me when we were camping uh, and in her backyard. And typically this referred to a type of wild grape. Um, that people would pick and preserve in various ways. So let's explore this a little bit. Um, I found a really wonderful description uh, and definition of fox grapes from the Hiker's Notebook website. That's at hikersnotebook.blog. Um, and I'll drop these links into the show notes if you want to just you know click and go right to them. So 
This article uh, gives the common name fox grape and a little bit of history here. The word grape is from the Frankish grapper, and I'm probably not pronouncing that right. I do not have any Germanic uh, language training, so forgive me if you do and you, you know. Uh, this means to pick grapes, and this came from Old High German kropfo, meaning hook, and the fruit was named for the hook used to harvest it. Grape replaced the original English name Weinberge, or something like that, and this is, we're talking Old English, but that translates to wineberry. Um, and if you're familiar with local foods and plants, we do still have a plant called wineberry, so it's really fascinating how the two split. Uh, the adjectival term refers to the consumption of the fruit by foxes. Scientific name is Vitis labrusca. The generic name derives from the Latin verb vicre, to bind or twist, vitis meaning that which winds. Labrosca is Latin for wild grapevine. Um, and I've seen at least two different restaurants called Labrosca. And uh, I don't speak Italian, but I would imagine uh, that has something to do with grapes and wine. Um, this site goes on to state that there are between 19 and 35 recognized species of native North American grapes according to a variety of credible sources. Many of the early naturalists tried to establish appropriate speciation. However, their independent efforts resulted in a profusion of species, subspecies, and varieties. Among the species, Vitus labrusca is one of the most prominent and it is widely recognized. The common names are even more heterogeneous as local usage and dialect are parochial by nature. The fox grape is known by about 30 different names including black grape, buck grape, frost grape, plum grape, skunk grape, and swamp grape. I don't know about you, but out of all of those, I think fox grape sounds the nicest. Anyhow, Vitus labrusca grows in cooler climate conditions such as those of the northeastern region of North America and ranges from Maine to South Carolina and west to the Appalachian Mountains. It is probably the grape cited by Norse explorers from Greenland, when they named the maritime area Canada, of Canada Vinland for its grapevines. The species was domesticated by the early colonists when imported European grapes would not grow in the colder climate. Um, and of course, when we're talking about grapes, whether they are wild or cultivated in a private garden or farm, um, we love to make grape jelly, grape jam, grape juice. There is a long tradition of that uh, in Appalachia and the eastern U.S., much more so than winemaking, although that is becoming a little bit more popular. Uh, here in western North Carolina, there are a number of, of vineyards and local wines. Um, Biltmore Estate, if you've been there, I mean, that's a, a classic, great example. They have beautiful vineyards um, on the grounds, and they make a lot of their wine right there. You can actually take a tour of the winery, um, not sound like a commercial for Biltmore, um, but I do recommend it, especially in non-pandemic times, to go and see their, their vineyards and taking the behind-the-scenes tour to see how they make the wine. It's really cool, um, and if you, if you do enjoy wine, you can even sample some and buy some bottles, but um, anyway, aside from that, when we're talking about the home scene, uh, it's much more grape jelly, grape jam, grape juice, um, and you can find so many different recipes. Um, uh, touching back on that blog, Blind Pig and the Acorn, 
Um, they have a really great recipe that walks you through the process with photos um, for making grape juice and grape jelly. Um, and I found another great resource, uh, really going into great detail about um, making grape jelly from the Glen Arbor Sun, which is based in Michigan. But a lot of, well, some of the, uh, the settlement patterns, migration patterns, uh, means that there is a little bit of overlap. And of course you have the fox grapes growing up there too because they, they thrive in cooler climates. Um, and this is a very traditional style recipe because it uses no pectin, uh, just grape juice, sugar, and lemon juice. And then a little bit of paraffin is added to the top of the jar at the end. Um, and in addition to being a great recipe and great explanation of the method, I just love the way that this article is written. Very, very talented writer that makes you, again, feel like you're right there. Um, I'll just read a little bit of it. The gathering of the grapes on a sunny fall day surrounded by their red and yellow leaves is a delight that far exceeds the tedious chore of painstakingly removing the grapes from their stems. I follow the tradition of removing the grapes one at a time from the stem and having the purple hands to prove it. After cleaning the grapes, they are simmered in water until the skins pop, releasing a marvelous aroma that fills the house. For me, the most difficult part of the jelly-making process is pouring the hot grape liquid into an old muslin pillowcase reserved only for this use. Once the juice is securely tied into the pillowcase, I hang it from a broomstick, balanced over my turkey roasting pan in the bottom of the utility room sink. The next morning, the fun resumes. Using my grandmother's method, I measure out only grape juice, sugar, and a little lemon juice. No processed fruit pectin. I bring this mixture to a boil in a heavy kettle, reduce the flame, and simmer it until it reaches the jelly stage. This is the point when the hot liquid on the metal spoon will drip onto a sheet in two or three thick drops as opposed to one thick or thin stream. A candy thermometer helps determine this since it is critical for the jelly to gel to the desired consistency when cool. The jelly stage is reached at 220 degrees Fahrenheit or 8 degrees above the boiling point. I carefully pour the scathing hot jelly into jars that have already been sterilized and placed upside down on a clean linen towel. By this time, the wonderful aroma from the fruit has permeated the entire house and anyone nearby has assembled in the kitchen to help clean out the still hot kettle. Pouring a thin layer of hot melted paraffin on top is the final step. For days, I will enjoy seeing these jars on the kitchen counter before finally moving them to the pantry. In winter, I will remember the days spent gathering the fruit and making the wild fox grape jelly. Foods not manufactured on a factory assembly line hold a special allure for people today, so I will either generously share the jars as gifts or more judiciously as a dollop atop thumbprint cookies. Either way, it will offer me the opportunity to retell the stories of my grandmother's kitchen. I think that just gets to the heart of it, doesn't it? We do these things not just because they are food and sustenance, you know, in the physical sense, but also to relive those memories and get in touch with our roots and our family um, and just all of these traditions, whether they were a part of your family's tradition or whether it's just something that you feel drawn to, just a wonderful part of human culture in general. So looking at some of the different varieties and descriptions, uh, fox grape we have as a an entry in the dictionary. We define it as a woody vine, again, Vitis labrusca, 
that bears small edible grapes that are green in color but later turn brown. So 1867, we have an example. His eyes were as big as fox grapes. <laughs> uh, and then um, we have some other examples here. 1984, uh, the fox grapes were larger grapes and almost the size of the tame Concord grapes. They too were very spicy, but because of the size, we ate all we could find. The fox grapes were not as plentiful and when a vine was found, we would watch it carefully until the grapes ripened and try to beat the birds or animals to them. I think that's such a common problem, uh, even in your garden, not even just with uh, wild fruits. You know, you're always trying to beat the birds and the bugs and the deer and rabbits and all these other pests who want to get to your nice salad bar before you do. And then 1907, or I'm sorry, 1997, a book about folklore in the region. After the frost, fox grapes that grew wild were gathered to make jelly. Um, and then we have the similar term fall grape, which according to interviews uh, by DARE, Dictionary of American Regional English, which I mentioned before, uh, this is the same as possum grapes and they make good jam and jelly. Um, a speaker from Cherokee, North Carolina, west of where I am, they say this is any type of wild grapes. A speaker in Kentucky, uh, Walker, Kentucky, says they are sweet and good. Similarly, we have possum grapes, um, a woody vine. It's a type of the vitus, uh, bearing small grapes made into jelly. It is green in color, but later turns brown. So very similar to fox grapes. And you can have this same plant where some people refer to it as fox grapes and some people refer to it as possum grapes just depending on what their community decided. Like so many uh, regional words in Appalachia and in other places, there's a lot of overlap. Um, so just a few from this one. Um, we have a wild grape, again, uh, from Dare 1966, an interview conducted. Um, and then we have a couple of examples that differentiate fox grapes and possum grapes. Uh, from 1983, there were two varieties of grapes to be found, fall and possum grapes. So this is fall grapes, not fox grapes. The former were the size of English peas and the latter like small grains of popcorn. The smoky fall or purple fall grapes were the pretties and I liked to hunt them. They were also sweeter than the purple black possum grapes, which tended to be sour to the taste. And that makes me think of grapes in South Carolina that are also ripe this time of year. The great big uh, scuppernogs and muscadines, if you've had those. Uh, 1981, we have a, a great uh, research collection. So this says that the possum grape is Vitus cordifolia, a type of small wild grape used in the Red River, Kentucky Gorge for jelly, uh, often mixed with other fruit and for wine. Informants distinguish between this grape and the summer grape or fall grape, as it is sometimes called, which is slightly larger and used in jellies and pies. Neither variety fully ripens or sweetens until after the first frost. You know, I've seen grape pie before, but I've never had it. I'm very curious as to what it tastes like. All right, and then moving on to our final topic, molasses. So uh, molasses is an interesting sweetener. It is the traditional sweetener 
in the Appalachian region. Um, and I found a great article that can explain it better than I can. So I'm just going to read this to you, uh, or at least an excerpt from the article. And this is from the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette newspaper. Um, and Arkansas, of course, is not really part of Appalachia, but um, there's so much overlap again um, between that region and what grew, especially in Southern Appalachia. So uh, just to read a little bit of this to you. While sugar was certainly available to our ancestors, costs and preferences meant that molasses often served as sugar substitute, long sweetening as it was sometimes called. Indeed, molasses has been called by many names and it has been used interchangeably with the name sorghum molasses. True molasses is made from sugar cane, which cannot survive our winters. However, sorghum is an annual crop and can be grown throughout Arkansas. Uh, many farm children simply called the syrup lassis. Um, so both of these things are true for Appalachia as well. It is very difficult to grow sugar cane in the Appalachian region, even in Southern Appalachia. Although some people have had success, that's not the general rule. Um, you think about where sugarcane really comes from. It's from those warmer latitudes, Florida and South and uh, Central and South America. But sorghum is pretty hardy um, and can survive in uh, much cooler climates. Um, and the second point here, even in Arkansas, many farm children called the syrup lassis. Now we see this throughout our research in the dictionary where many, many people, not just children, they call it lassis and uh, other variants, which I'll get to in just a moment. Um, so we have, um, a little bit of the history of it. So it wasn't really grown in Arkansas until after the civil war, which is pretty fascinating. Um, and you know, where do you think it came from? You get three guesses and the first two don't count. <laughs> it was brought West, uh, probably most likely, almost certainly from the Appalachian region when, uh, people moving that way after the war um, to, you know, start their own uh, farms and homesteads and things. Um, and just to get away from the Reconstruction period, it was a very rough time in the South. They moved over there and they discovered very conveniently that some of the landscape and the climate was very similar to what they had just left. Discover, oh my gosh, hey, we can grow sorghum here just as well as we did back in the hills of Appalachia. So that's what they did. Um, so looking at this article a little bit more, they actually give a great uh, description on, on how the sorghum molasses was made. The first step in making sorghum molasses was stripping the leaves from the eight foot tall canes as the stalks of sorghum were called, like sugar cane, then cutting the canes and transporting them to the mill. The canes were passed through a roller which squeezed the sugar-laden juice and collected it for transportation to a large pan for processing. And this, this brings back memories for me of a uh, completely different uh, place, almost a different world, thinking back on it. Um, uh, many of you probably don't know, but I, my primary research interest a while ago, before I became so involved in this dictionary project, was... Uh, Japanese linguistics and there are endangered languages in the smaller Japanese islands out by Taiwan 
and I spent time researching one of those uh, languages that is quickly dying out. And um, I vividly recall riding my bike through sugarcane fields there because it's very warm there um, and going to this little stand. It was this guy who just had these like boxes and buckets just chock full of sugarcane that he had done the same thing with. He stripped the leaves, cut them, and just had them propped up there. And you would go up to this counter and he had this special machine. And I gave him 200 yen, which, you know, it's a little bit less than two bucks. And he would grab, I think he grabbed two or three of these these uh, canes and just put them through this hand crank mill really quick. And the juice just dripped out and he would serve it with ice. And it was the most refreshing thing. And I, I really wonder if sorghum juice tastes like that. Um, just, it's so interesting how you know, this process in Appalachia, it, it mirrors an experience I had literally on the other side of the world. And it just, it connects everything. I love making those connections. Uh, but anyway, so, uh, once they did that, the sorghum mill, uh, was usually powered by a horse or mule, uh, which pulled a long wooden sweep in a circle around the mill. And the worker who fed the cane into the mill had to continuously duck under the ever circling sweep. I bet his back felt great at the end of the day. So that fresh juice was poured into a long metal pan mounted on a brick or stone fire box. Uh, Jim Clemens, who grew up in Cross County, has written that as a boy, he helped make several molasses pans in his father's tin shop, and he described them as roughly eight feet wide and 14 feet long. These were huge. So in the, uh, the earlier days in Appalachia, I don't think we would have been looking at a system that was quite that sophisticated. Um, but then in making the molasses, the process, as the juice boiled, a covering of green froth formed and had to be skimmed off. Um, so this was an important part. And in the dictionary, we have an entry for this green molasses, which in 1978, Smokey's Heritage, uh, they write foamy skim of boiling molasses rises to the top and is quickly removed. Otherwise, the molasses will be dark and bitter. This is a condition known as green molasses. So this is a very important step of that process. Um, and in Appalachia, so I don't think that um, the people in Arkansas have this term, but in Appalachia, we have the verb scrum, which means to skim the green film that forms at the top of boiling sorghum cane as it is cooked and made into molasses. And a great example from 1975, you had to be careful to keep the sorghum scrummed while it was cooking. So, um, backing up just a bit. So, um, looking at my notes, sorry there. Um, we do have quite a long entry for molasses uh, in the dictionary and uh, some of the variants. So you'll see this or hear it as uh, lassie, lacy, lassies, molassie. Um, and a lot of times it's, uh, it's taken as a plural, uh, which is pretty interesting. Um, so, and they would treat it like that um, in a sentence. Um, so molasses usually referred to a liquid sweetener, usually made from sorghum. The term is traditionally construed as a plural count noun, hence the singular lassie, molassie, through back formation. And this is a very technical linguistic, but 
Uh, essentially, you know, today we just say molasses, a jar of molasses. Uh, hand me the molasses. Um, but uh, they differentiated it. They would think molasses meant plural, and they would say these molasses. And then from that, they would make it into a singular noun, which we might think of as incorrect, but it was really a, a pretty clever linguistic process. So they would take molasses and they would think, well, if that's the plural, then we must have a singular, molassi. <laughs> so um, you do see that form, especially in some of these older um, sources. So for example, 1860, we have a book called Backcountry. Molasses, they always used as if in the plural number like oats, urging me to take, quote, them molasses. But perhaps I wouldn't like them with my bacon. Uh, 1863, the language spoken by Southern Hill people amused New Englanders. My gosh, even back as far as 1863. Anyway, a volunteer in the Massachusetts 36th Infantry remembered that his hostess in a cabin apologized for the proffered fare. When asked if she had any molasses, he remembered she replies, well, we haven't many, but we have a few. <laughs> totally making fun of the poor guy. Um... And then looking at some of the people who actually used this, not just made fun of it or were observing from afar, we have a Civil War soldier from 1863 writing in a letter. Uh, he said, we only draw half pound of bacon per day. A half pound of bacon per day. I just want to highlight that. And one pound of meal per day, a pound of pickled beef per day, and a few molasses and a little rice. So it, it definitely was not uh, just a rumor or a way to make fun of people. It was used. Um, and then there are some great descriptions here uh, about uh, the sorghum that the molasses came from. 1913, uh, we have a book about the Carolina mountains. Besides the cornfields, there are those frequent fields of something that imitates a corn, a right smart, as the people say, but which is only sorghum from which in the fall the mountaineer extracts molasses for home consumption. Then 1937, um, Joseph Hall, he talked to uh, several people about molasses and discovered that there were actually a few different types. Uh, according to one person, molasses may be of four kinds, cane, pumpkin, persimmon, and maple. And we also have an entry in the dictionary, maple molasses, which is actually maple syrup. So it's interesting how molasses also came to take on this meaning of just a sweet syrup, no matter what it was made for. Um, 1986, we have a book. The mountain people use the molasses for sweetening in many ways in their cooking, as well as plain or with butter on their biscuits. If you've ever had a fresh biscuit with butter and molasses over it, it is fantastic. Highly recommend 10 out of 10. Give it a try. Um, and then, you know, let's just, let's just end this entry with the West Virginia Encyclopedia. In West Virginia, sorghum molasses has also been called molasses, lassies, and sorghums, plural. But today, producers sometimes call their product 100% pure sweet sorghum syrup because of the fact that stores now sell, quote, molasses that are mixtures of corn syrup flavorings, food coloring, and other additives. Terrible, but true. But also interesting here for the linguistics nerds among us, even in this example, 
We have molasses used as a plural. Cell molasses that are mixtures. I just love it. I love it. So it survives even in academic publications in some regions. So moving on a little bit, um, long sweetening. So right, typically long sweetening referred to molasses, as I said, uh, but it's also any heavy syrupy sweetener could also refer to honey. And this was in contrast to short sweetening, which typically referred to a granulated sugar, whether that was made from uh, sugar cane, like your typical white sugar store-bought, um, or maple sugar, or uh, anything like that. Um, and 1892, there's a Cumberland Gap book um, talking about uh, drinks and, and things in the region. Another beverage is Mountain Tea, which is made from the sweet-scented goldenrod and from wintergreen, the New England checkerberry. These decoctions, they mollify with homemade sorghum molasses, which they call long-sweetening, or with sugar, which by contrast is known as short-sweetening. So that's kind of a, an interesting differentiation. In 1955, we have a book by Paris um, where they write, an old timer is one who remembers when long sweetening was honey and short sweetening was maple sugar. So this is different. This doesn't refer to molasses. This is more honey. And of course, that would be completely based on the region the writer comes from. Um, but it is interesting and it makes me uh, wonder if this was a northern part of Appalachia since maple sugar was uh, so common for them to refer to it like that. Um, moving on just a little bit. So, uh, like the bean stringings, bean hullings, we had the molasses boil. So this was another great event and I would love to go to one of these simply to smell the molasses cooking. So we define this as, um, traditionally an annual all day neighborhood work activity in the fall with festivities lasting into the night. The juice pressed from stalks of sorghum was laboriously poured, stirred, and boiled, producing a thick syrup that served as a principal sweetener for the traditional mountain table. As part of the festivities, young couples often fashioned into candy by pulling stretches or ropes of it until they cooled and hardened into edible sticks. So this, this event was also called molasses uh, boil, molasses making, and molasses stir off. Um, and there were just so many of these events uh, in the fall. Um, and just, we'll do uh, one example here from 1966. He remembered how the farmers never hired hands for wheat threshing, but would help each other. How the boys and girls shucked corn together and had a time telling tales and singing, as they did spelling bees and lasses boilings. Um, and going back to that candy that they would make at the end of the, the hard work, Pull candy. We have this entry in the dictionary. This is hard molasses candy made by stretching warm molasses that hardened as it cooled. See also candy pulling, which was uh, what, you know, the process of making this candy was called. Uh, and sometimes the candy pulling would be like a molasses boiling. It would be a big event party for everybody with music and dancing and what have you. Um, so... Um, yeah, we just we have a great uh, example from 1976 from James Still talking about this type of event. And it just, it so wonderfully captures fall in the mountains. Apples were roasted on the hearth, potatoes baked in ashes, popcorn capped, 
and pull candy need. And uh, aside from just plain molasses, there were a number of molasses treats, which I'll just touch on briefly. We had molasses bread, uh, which you can probably guess, bread made from adding molasses to flour as a sweetener rather than sugar or honey. Uh, molasses cookies is mentioned in a number of the sources uh, that went into the research for the dictionary. I don't know if I've ever had a molasses cookie. I've definitely never had molasses bread, but I would very much like to try some. Molasses butter, a sweet spread put on biscuits, fried cornbread, or pancakes. Uh, and then molasses corn. And this was a special treat uh, at molasses making time. When barely full ears of corn were shucked and put in the kettle of boiling molasses and allowed to cook into a sweet confection. Sounds like some kind of iteration of caramel corn, doesn't it? Um, I would love to try that. I love the flavor of molasses. Um, if you're ever in the mountains, especially in the fall, and you can get your hands on some of the real molasses, not the, uh, the corn syrup stuff that uh, we talked about a little bit earlier, definitely give it a try. It's a much deeper flavor than you might imagine. It looks like honey, but it's definitely an earthier, nuttier flavor, but it's just wonderful. Um, just so wonderfully captures that autumn spirit. Now, after reading through all of this and sharing it with you, I feel like I've kind of come into the fall spirit. I, oh no, <laughs> we still have a few more days of August left, but um, it makes it a little bit uh, easier to swallow, shall we say, forgive the pun, <laughs> with that uh, bittersweet mood that comes with the arrival of fall for many of us. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed today's discussion of all things food. Maybe I should have included a warning that it could make you hungry because I'm pretty hungry myself now after talking about all of that. But thank you once again for listening. Um, again, if you'd like to share any memories with me, any of the terms that I mentioned today, or just to get in touch, drop me a line at appalachian.dictionary at gmail.com. Um, you can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Anchor, uh, I think we're on what Podbean, Stitcher, all sorts of places, wherever you get your finest podcasts, Appalachian Words should be there. Um, and if you really enjoy the podcast and you want to hear more, do leave me a review on Apple. That really uh, helps, helps me gain some notice um, so I can continue making these episodes. Um, but once again, I hope you enjoyed and I hope you are enjoying these last bittersweet days of summer. Um, Take care, be well, see you next time.